If you would, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. As we continue on in the Gospel of John this morning, John uh, chapter 20, we'll be in uh, verses 1 through 10 this morning. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran, came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were Going to the tomb. Two of them were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Now, in these verses we find the great and wonderful news of the empty tomb. Even though our Lord Jesus was really dead, even though his body had lay there in the grave for three days, even though his soul had passed into the realm of the dead and remained in the state of the dead for three days, yet, praise God, he did not remain in that condition. He had the authority to lay down his life. He also had the authority to take it up again. And he did. And as we consider these verses this morning, we will do so under, under three main headings. First, the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. Second, the scriptures foretold that he must rise again from the dead. The scriptures foretold that he must rise again from the dead. And then thirdly, we'll come to what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. What the resurrection of Jesus means for us. So first of all, the tomb was empty. Secondly, the scriptures foretold that he must rise again from the dead. And then what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. So the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us four different uh, snapshots of the events that happened on that glorious Easter Sunday. And John here focuses his account on the experiences of Mary Magdalene, Peter, and himself, being that he himself interacted with Mary Magdalene that day and was an eyewitness himself of the empty tomb, we can easily understand why he would focus his account the way that he does. He opens his account of that glorious day by telling us that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mark 16 verse 1 tells us that she was not alone, that with her were Mary, the mother of James, and another woman named Salome. And Mark also tells us uh, that they had bought spices so that they might anoint the body of Jesus. In other words, they wanted to honor 
the dead body of the man whom they loved so much, there was a problem. They were concerned about how they were going to execute their designs. And so according to Mark 16, verse 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? It's a big rock in the way. These three women didn't think they could do it. Who's going who's to get the rock out of the way? They were left wondering. And John tells us in verse 1 that she saw that the stone was rolled away. Well, isn't, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? The stone was taken away. The problem solved. Now they can just go in and use the spices and anoint Jesus' body. But if you'll notice the account here, it was not so. As soon as Mary sees that the stone was moved away from the tomb, she reaches another conclusion. All things considered, it seems that she may not even have actually looked into the tomb herself. She, John doesn't say that she looked into the tomb herself. She may have just automatically reached the conclusion that if the stone was already gone, somebody's been in there messing around. They took the body of Jesus, perhaps grave robbers came and stole the body. And so she hightails it out of there, runs to Peter and John, says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. And so Peter and John get up and go check it out themselves, see what's going on. Just as Mary Magdalene had run to them, so they, now Peter and John, run to the tomb. John runs faster, probably being younger than Peter. And John stopped outside the tomb and stooped down to take a look inside, but didn't actually go in yet. He sees the linen strips that had formerly enclosed the body of Jesus. And then Peter shows up, and straight away he goes into the tomb, just walks right in, takes a look around, sees the linen strip, also this face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, which was not with the linen wrappings, but was rolled up in a place by itself. And then, only after Peter had gone in, did John go in, see what there was to see, and notice... What was not there to see? What was not there to see, obviously, was the body of Jesus. And according to his testimony that he gives there in verse 8, he says that he believed. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. Well, what, what was it that he actually believed? He believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Though he had not yet seen Jesus alive, John did see the empty tomb. He saw the linen strips laying there, saw the face cloth rolled up in a different spot, and he believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, it might be worth our time, and I realize this is not the main point that John is going for, but it may well be worth our time to pause for a moment and consider the different mannerisms of Peter and John that are on display here. Again, this is not the main point of the text, but it's clearly exhibited in the text, even if only incidentally. Which of these two men did the right thing upon getting to the tomb? John seems more reserved and cautious. You know, he, he doesn't go in. And Peter, when he gets in there, he just, he just goes in straight. Who was right? Who was wrong? Well, the answer is really not either one of them, right? It's, it's okay. They both did right. Sometimes the difference between right and wrong is very clear. If you're in a situation where you have two options, one is in accordance with the will of God as revealed in Scripture, and one is not, obviously the difference between right and wrong is crystal clear. This situation is not clear-cut like that. When it comes to 
looking at the empty tomb of Jesus and you have the choice to actually go inside or, or not, there's not really a right or wrong answer. John did eventually go inside, but he hesitated. He let Peter go in first. And I think that we can see here that in doing as they did, both men were acting in accordance with their normal personal characteristics, right? If you think about Peter in the Gospels, he's up front, he's impulsive, he's bold. John seems a little more timid, cautious, thoughtful. And so what do you know? When it comes to showing up at the empty tomb of Jesus, both men act as they characteristically act. And that's all right. Not all the apostles were exactly alike. Not all believers are exactly alike. We all have different dispositions, different gifts, and so on. Martin Luther wrote in 1529, comparing and contrasting his friend and fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon, with himself, and he said, I prefer the books of Master Philippus to my own. I am rough, boisterous, stormy, and altogether warlike. I am born to fight against innumerable monsters and devils. I must remove stumps and stones and cut away thistles and thorns and clear the wild forests. But Master Philippus comes along softly and gently, sowing and watering with joy, according to the gifts which God has abundantly bestowed on him. The point is that we're, we're all different. We're all going to respond differently to different situations that come along, and that's fine as long as we don't sin. Someone who is rough and boisterous and stormy and altogether warlike, like Martin Luther, is going to have to deal with a certain set of characteristic temptations and sins that come to such a person. And those temptations are going to be different than the kinds of temptations and sins that come to the Philip Melanchthons of the world. The losers of the world might get into some fights when they shouldn't. And the Melanchthons of the world are probably going to try to patch things over and make peace when they really need to stand up and make a stand and put up a fight. There's no sin in the fact that we have different dispositions and personalities, but we just need to be on guard against the sins and temptations that accompany our own dispositions. I think J.C. Ryle said it well when he said, Let us learn from the case before us to make allowances for wide varieties in the inward character of believers. To do so will save us much trouble in the journey of life and prevent many an uncharitable thought. Let us not judge brethren harshly and set them down in a low place because they do not see or feel things exactly as we see and feel and because things do not affect or strike them just as they affect and strike us. Now again, this is not, not the main point here of John 20, obviously, but it's, it's worth considering that we see here different reactions to the empty tomb, and these reactions are in accordance with the personal characteristics of these men. And as believers, we're different. We have to learn to love each other. We have to learn to, to get along together, and we're not all alike. And so we have, to, we have to understand that. That's part of what it means to be the body of Christ. The good news here, though, is that the tomb was empty. John saw it. That is, he saw that it was empty, and he believed. Now, we come to our second point. The scriptures foretold that he must rise again from the dead. You notice there in verse 9 that just because John believed that Jesus was raised from the dead, that in itself did not mean that he had come to the full understanding of the biblical significance of the event. 
neither Peter nor John understood the scripture that he must rise from the dead. And they went away from the tomb to the place where they were staying. John went away believing, and according to Luke's statement, Luke 24, 12, Peter went away marveling at what had happened. John says they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Now, what scripture is John talking about? I doubt John's intent here is to actually refer to any one particular Old Testament passage. I suspect rather that what he means to say is that he did not understand that the Old Testament in general and many places specifically taught that Christ would be raised from the dead. Psalm 16 and Isaiah 53 uh, may be some obvious places in the Old Testament to begin where you have some specific testimony pointing to the resurrection. David speaks prophetically and says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. If you think ahead to Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching there to the crowd on Pentecost and he refers back to Psalm 16 and says, David's body is here. It is decayed. David didn't ascend to heaven. He was talking about Jesus. This is fulfilled in Jesus in that God raised him from the dead. Likewise, Isaiah 53, 12, we find the Father saying, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Now, these are passages that certainly speak to the issue of the resurrection. But if we think about the Old Testament, there is also a more subtle typology that is going on in, in many places in the Old Testament. We have Father Abraham receiving back his son Isaac. We read about that in our unison reading from Hebrews chapter 11. Now, obviously, Isaac didn't actually die on Mount Moriah when Abraham was ready to sacrifice him. The Lord instead intervened and provided a ram for the sacrifice. But nevertheless, what we read together in Hebrews eleven nineteen was that Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. In other words, Abraham received Isaac back as a type. As a type of, of what? As a type of the Messiah who was to come, who would be sacrificed and raised from the dead. There was a sign of Jonah, which Christ claimed was a sign of his emergence from the grave. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, Matthew twelve forty. And along those lines, there is much in the Old Testament that has to do with three days. You can call it a theme, you can call it a repeating pattern. In Genesis 22, 4, when, uh, when Abraham is taking Isaac to Mount Moriah, it was the third day after Abraham and Isaac had set off for the sacrifice that Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place on Mount Moriah where he was to prepare to sacrifice Isaac. In Genesis 42, 7 and 8, Joseph's brothers were put in prison for three days and then released. He said to them on the third day, Do this and live. When the nation of Israel had come out of Egypt and gathered at Mount Sinai, as our brother Mark read for us this morning, we find the Lord's words to Moses, Exodus 19, 10 and 11, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people. The law in Leviticus 7 
demanded that no flesh of any peace offering be eaten after the third day. There were different types of peace offerings. If you read the law there in Leviticus, some had to be consumed on the day that they were offered. Others could be saved for a little while, but they must be consumed by the third day. If they weren't eaten by the third day, they had to be burned up with fire. We have those words also of our call to worship, Hosea 6.2. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. And, and we, can, we could go on. There are, there are more examples than this of, of this, this theme of, of the third day that often there was a, a certain significance to something happening on the third day. But nevertheless, I think you see the point. These Old Testament examples indicate that there was something significant about the third day. And indeed, there was something significant. It was pointing, these were pointing forward as signs to Christ because it was then that he would be raised from the dead. John saw the empty tomb, and he saw the evidence that Jesus' body was not stolen, but rather that it pointed in another direction. Someone who was simply moving the body to another grave would not have removed the grave clothes. Someone who was stealing the body would not have taken the time to do all that was done at the tomb. The grave robber would want to get in and get out as quickly as possible. The evidence on the scene indicated that Jesus' body had not been dealt with in a hasty manner. The face cloth had been rolled up and placed by itself. The evidence pointed to a resurrection, that Jesus had been raised from the dead. John saw and believed, even though as yet he did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. That would, that would come. Jesus would explain the scripture to him. He would come to believe and to understand and evidently, in as much as he himself is writing this, he says, as of yet, they did not understand that he must rise again from the dead. John's indicating he didn't know it yet, but he came to know it. He came to know it. And this brings us then to our third point for this morning, which is what the resurrection of Jesus means for us. This is, this is history. This is a historical event. How... How does this apply to you and me today, 2022? Well, the doctrine of the resurrection is a central fact of the Christian faith. One theologian went so far as to say, this article of our belief is in a manner the chief of all the rest. For it had not been enough if our Lord had died only, unless he had also risen from the dead again. For if he had not risen from the dead, but had remained still in death, who should have persuaded us men that sin was purged by the death of Christ, that death was vanquished, Satan overcome, and hell broken up for the faithful by the death of Christ? The resurrection of Christ is central to the Christian faith. How did Paul say it? 1 Corinthians fifteen seventeen. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. In other words, if Christ has not been raised... We might as well just pack up and go home. He says, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen. Right? Paul's saying, if Jesus isn't raised, we ought to be out of here doing something else. But Christ has been raised from the dead. 
And as we, as we think about what the resurrection means for us, let's, let's think about four, four aspects of this. So first of all, Christ is vindicated and we're justified. Christ is vindicated and we are, are justified. And so Christ is vindicated. What does this mean? The resurrection, as it were, is, is the Father's stamp of approval on the finished work of Christ. And we, we see this in the New Testament. So, for instance, in Acts 13, when Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, he speaks of the resurrection of Christ as the fulfillment of Psalm 2. He says this, Acts, 6, uh, Acts 13, 32 and 33. He says, And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He says that the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 2 where God the Father says, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. Now, when Paul says that the resurrection is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, he's not denying the fact that Jesus, as the Son of God, is eternally begotten of the Father, because Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. But if I may borrow the words of of one writer, Paul says this because Jesus was then manifested to be the eternally begotten Son of God. Things are said to be when they are manifested to be. So Christ is said to be that day begotten because he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And that's what Paul says in Romans 1-4, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Jesus' divine nature is declared to us in his resurrection. Now, it was a great thing when the Roman soldier saw Jesus die and said, surely this was the Son of God. But it was an even greater thing when Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection. And so it's in this way that the resurrection is the vindication of Christ. It's the declaration of his deity. As the God-man, he had the authority to lay down his life. He had the authority to take it up again. As God, he raised himself from the dead. And therefore, Peter says, 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And in a passage like that, in 1 Peter 3.18, or, or like Romans 1.4, where we see a reference to the, to the flesh, or the humanity of Christ, contrasted with the Spirit, I think we do well to follow those who have understood that contrast as being between the human nature of Christ and the divine nature of Christ. That he was put to death in the flesh, in his human nature, his body was killed and crucified on the cross, he gave up his spirit, John 19.30, but he was made alive in the spirit that is made alive by his divine nature. Indeed, the scripture is explicit that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, places like Romans 6.4, Ephesians 1.20, but it is equally affirmed that Jesus raised himself from the dead. Again, he had the authority to lay his life down, he had the authority to take it up again. Think of John 2.19 where he said, destroy this temple and in three days... I will raise it up. Right? He's talking about himself. He said, I will raise it up. No one else could say or do such a thing. It is in this way that the resurrection proves the deity of Jesus Christ. It's in this way that he's declared to be the Son of God 
with power. And you'll recall that this indeed is a vindication of him because that was the very thing that the chief priest became so angry about. And he accused Jesus of blasphemy because Jesus claimed to be the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One. They said it was blasphemy and he tore his robes, said that he was deserving of death. But it's his resurrection that proves Jesus to be exactly who he said he was. And so Christ is vindicated in his resurrection and therefore we are justified. The resurrection is God's way of confirming that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins, that the death of Christ is sufficient for the sins of the whole world, that he bore those sins in his body on the tree, and that he made atonement for his people. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, according to 2 Corinthians 5. And why is this? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And how does this happen? It happens through the resurrection of Christ. And so Paul says at the end of Romans 4 that he was delivered over to death for our sins, raised again for our justification. It is in the resurrection of Christ that God the Father shows his approval of Christ and his work, and thus that saving work may be applied to us. God demonstrates that his wrath is satisfied in the death of Christ Because Christ comes to life again. And this means that God no longer views Christ as guilty in our place. Christ was guilty in our place. He took our sins and guilt upon him. But the ransom has been paid. It's all over now. And this blessing of justification, receiving the forgiveness of sins and righteousness credited to us, comes to us because on the third day, Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Christ is vindicated, and therefore we are justified. The second implication of the resurrection of Christ is that Christ has defeated sin and death, and therefore we don't have to be afraid anymore. We know that Christ has overcome death because he was dead, but is dead no longer. And so we read in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, that Jesus likewise also partook of the same so that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, through dying, Jesus rendered the devil powerless. At one time, Satan had the power of death, but Jesus made him powerless. This means that all who are in Christ do not need to be afraid of death. The devil has no claim upon us. If you remember back to uh, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said that the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. In other words, Satan has no dirt on Jesus. And for all who are in Jesus, Satan has no dirt on us as well. The devil has no claim upon us. Any condemnation that he might bring will fall to the ground because Jesus has defeated him and has rendered us guiltless. And as Christ was raised from the dead, so our bodies will be as well. When will this be? Well, this happens when, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 57, when Christ comes, then will come about the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's think about 
1 Corinthians 15 a little bit there. When Paul says that the, the sting of death is sin, what he's getting at is that the empowering principle of death is sin. If it weren't for sin, death would have no power whatsoever. But because Adam sinned, death came through sin. Death came to Adam and Eve, death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. But God gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How so? Because Christ has died for our sins and has taken our sins from us, put them on himself. And so what this means is that he has taken away the sting of death. He's taken away Sin. He's taken it away so that death can no longer hurt us. And this means that all who are in Christ do not need to fear their own death because death can't hurt us anymore because the sting of death, our sins, have been taken away from us in Christ. Obviously, unless we're here for the second coming, we're going to die. But death doesn't harm us. Death simply takes us to be with the Lord. And this, is, this also means that when our beloved in Christ die, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. They've gone to be with Christ, and on the last day, their body will be raised as well. Christ has struck the death blow against death already, and death will be swallowed up in victory on that great day when the dead are raised. Christ has defeated death, and therefore we do not need to be afraid. And we can therefore gladly join in the hymn and say, Let the church with gladness hymns of triumph sing, For her Lord now liveth, death has lost its sting. Thine is the glory, risen conquering Son. Endless is the victory thou, or death, hast won. A third implication of the resurrection of Christ for us is that Christ was raised from the dead, and we're raised with him to walk in newness of life. We are raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. Now, we touched on this briefly last week when we were uh, discussing Romans 6 in connection with the death and burial of Christ. If you think back to to Romans 6, after Paul had affirmed the fullness and freeness of salvation by grace in Christ, Paul asks a very logical follow-up question, Romans 6.1. If grace is so free in Christ, does that mean then that as Christians we get to keep sinning so that grace may abound? The answer is no. Of course not. By no means. The reason is that all who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Or, as he says in Romans 6.6, our old self, our old man, was crucified so that the body of sin might be done away with. But doing away with the body of sin, having it killed and buried, is only one side of the coin. The flip side of the coin is that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, and what this means is that we too now have new life through Jesus to walk in newness of life. Peter made the connection this way in... First uh, Peter 1.3, when he said that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
There's a, an intimate connection between the new life that we live now as believers and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And this means, as Paul says in Romans 6.11, that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And there are obviously all kinds of implications in this. Our connection with the death and resurrection of Christ means now that we exercise discipline in regard to how we use our bodies and in regard to how we use our minds. And as Paul continues on in that chapter of Romans 6, he talks about not allowing sin to reign in our mortal bodies and no longer presenting our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Well, if we're not supposed to do that, then what do we do instead? He says we're to present ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness. And there are implications for how we use our bodies. There are implications for how we use our minds. And so Colossians 3, 1 through 3, we find these words, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep thinking the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We've been transformed to a, a different realm. We've been, we've been raised with Christ. And this means that in our minds we should be seeking those things which are above, not simply the things on earth. Obviously, we have to think about the things of earth somewhat, just to, just to get by and live, obviously. But that's not to be our focus. Our main, the main thing is to set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's a sense in which we've not only been raised with Christ from the dead and participate in his resurrection, there's also a sense in which we share in his ascension inasmuch as it is our lives are now said to be hidden with Christ in God. And inasmuch as we find in Ephesians 2, 6 that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And... Uh, Lord willing, we'll, we'll speak, speak more of the, the ascension of Christ next week as we, as we continue on here in chapter 20. But most of us, myself uh, included, probably don't have quite a solid grasp as we ought on who we really are in Christ and what our position is in Him. We've truly been raised with Christ. We've been seated with Him in the heavenly places, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And this means that we have an obligation to live like who we actually are. We are obligated to offer ourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead because Christ was raised from the dead and has given us new life. Now we come to the, the fourth implication of, of the resurrections, fourth and final implication. The resurrection of Jesus makes our labor for him meaningful. The bottom line uh, is that Christ's victory over sin and death means that what we do in this world for Christ has purpose. And the resurrection of Christ guarantees it. And if you think, to again, back to 1 Corinthians 15, think to how Paul ends that wonderful chapter. He's talked about the resurrection. Last verse of the chapter, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
And so, if Christ is not risen, Paul's made this point, if Christ is not risen, everything's vanity. Faith, preaching, all that is worthless. We're still in our sins. We're liars about God. If Christ isn't risen, nothing else matters. We can simply say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Take what you can, give nothing back. Live for today like there's no tomorrow, because someday there will be no tomorrow. That would be a realistic assessment and a very practical philosophy to live by if Christ were not risen from the dead. Take what you can, give nothing back. But Christ is risen. The victory is his, and God grants a share in Christ's victory over sin and death and Satan to all who believe in Christ. This means that life does have meaning. It means that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, that it has purpose and value. Christ's resurrection is no guarantee that every effort of ours made in his name will be successful, so to speak, from an earthly point of view. Sometimes we evangelize, no one believes, right? We, we talked about that this morning in Sunday school. Sometimes we go door to door, nobody comes to church. Sometimes we pour ourselves into an endeavor that seems like a just and godly thing to do, yet for all we can see, there's no tangible fruit that results from that endeavor. But yet the word of God says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. I think the words of Charles Hodge were helpful when he said, As Christ has risen, and as his resurrection illustrates and renders certain that of his people, what is more natural and proper than that they should abound in the work of the Lord? This with Paul was more than faith. It was knowledge. He knew that labor in the work of the Lord would not be in vain. The reward secured for it by the grace of God and the merit of Christ is participation of the glories of a blessed resurrection. And so the, because Christ is risen, we can give ourselves wholeheartedly to the labor to which God has called us. And God has called us to do all kinds of different things. Some people are going to school. Some people are going to work. Some people are evangelizing the lost. Hopefully we all are evangelizing the lost in some way. Uh, some of us are serving one another in church, discipling others, fighting our sin. All of these things have lasting value when they are done to the glory of God because Christ is risen. Now we participate in that resurrection now in as much as we have new and eternal life in Christ. And one day our bodies will be raised even as his was. Now again, this is no guarantee that our labors will be fruitful from an earthly point of view. But if we are simply faithful in doing those things which God commands, doing them out of love for God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, such things are never done in vain. Never done in vain. The writer to the Hebrews said it this way, that God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Christ is raised and we will be too. And God in his grace will reward our labors. Not because he's indebted to us, but because in his grace he has chosen to reward his people. And so the bottom line is, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Your labors will be rewarded. Sometimes we see fruit from them, praise God, when we do. Sometimes we'll see the fruit in heaven from them that we did not see on earth. Praise God for that. But regardless of whether you see fruit here 
whether you see it in heaven or neither of those, as long as you're honoring the Lord, serving Him, that labor is never done in vain. God sees, knows, God will reward you for serving Him and following Him. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that, that you will be raised, you'll be brought to Christ's eternal kingdom with Him, and you will worship God forever. God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love that you have shown toward His name. Now, let me just say here at the end that if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that if you've not repented of your sins and believed in Him, I want you to realize that none of these, none of these blessings of the resurrection that we've been talking about belong to you so long as you remain apart from Jesus Christ. You are not justified in God's sight. You are still in your sins. You are still guilty before God. You ought to be afraid of death because apart from Christ, you will be raised to a resurrection of judgment. If you are still in your sins, the sting of death, which is sin, still remains for you. It's not been taken away because your sins have not been taken away. If you're apart from Christ, the sting of death still remains because your sin still remains. Apart from Christ, you do not have new life and there is nothing that you can do to give yourself new life. Apart from Christ, ultimately, your labor is in vain. It is. We're told in Habakkuk 2.13, Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? That's you if you're apart from Christ. That's your situation. You toil for the fire, you grow weary for nothing. Sounds miserable, doesn't it? It is miserable. But I want you to know this morning the good news of the empty tomb. That Jesus died on the cross, that he rose again three days later to save sinners, to justify them, to give them eternal life, an eternal life that begins now here on this earth. And one day your body will be raised, you will be with the Lord forever. And God has done this freely, all by his mercy and grace. And I beg you, for the sake of your soul, to believe the testimony of John, that the tomb was empty. That it was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. Not because his body was taken away, but because he had risen from the dead. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And so turn to him in faith. Turn away from your sins. Repent and believe today. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for the great truth that Christ is risen from the dead. Lord, we ask that you would help us that our lives would be a, a suitable commentary on the resurrection, that we would live on earth as those whose lives are in heaven because our lives really are in heaven. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Father, we praise you that you have raised up Christ. We pray that you would help us, that you would give us grace to turn away from our sins, to give ourselves fully to you and to your service. Father, we are so thankful for the blessings that come to us because Christ's tomb was empty. We ask your blessing. We ask your help. In Jesus' name, amen.